This program is brought to you by Grand Valley State University. Caliphate of Kalamazoo, Michigan. The interviewer is James Smither of Grand Valley State University. Uh, can you begin by telling us a little bit about your own background? Uh, to start with, where and when were you born? I was born in Chicago, Illinois on September 3rd, 1924. And what did your father do for a living? My father was an immigrant that came from Poland and mm -hmm. worked very hard in the stockyards in okay. Chicago, Illinois at one point in time. Then he went into his own business. He was in the bar business. In, in what business? He was in the liquor business. Okay. Uh, and so he's and doing he that in, in the 30s, sort of after Prohibition, or was he doing it during Prohibition? It was during Prohibition. Okay. Which made it exciting, to say the least. All right. He went into the service right after he became a United States citizen mm -hmm. and spent four years in the Army in France and Germany at that time. Mm -hmm. Returned, got married. My mother had four children, three boys and a sister. We all graduated, they, they uh, took it upon themselves to try to give us the best education they could under mm -hmm. the conditions that they were living under at that time, which, which is understandable. During the prohibition years it was pretty difficult at that point in time. But they were able to put us through a military academy at that time, yeah. which was the best four years I ever spent in my life. Now what area of Chicago did you live in? We lived on the southwest side of Chicago. Uh, are you familiar with the area? I'm from Chicago. Just 5800 South Sacramento Avenue, just, just mm -hmm. short ways from Kesey Avenue and mm -hmm. Western Avenue at that point. Right. And was that a substantially Polish neighborhood at that time? We were living, living there for, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And was that mostly a Polish neighborhood at least to start with no, or was it, it was a mix? Not. It was not. Okay. It was, uh, it was a blend of everything that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. It was not primarily Polish. All right. Now what was the, what was the uh, high school that you attended? Morgan Park Military Academy. Okay. And that's in uh, at 111 in Western Avenue. Mm -hmm. if, if yeah, so it's a little bit farther south and west of where you were living. Yeah. yeah. But there were four years and graduated from there. Okay. Went into the Marine Corps well, two months after I graduated. Right. So you'd started high school sort of before America gets into the war. Uh, and in that period there, were you paying much attention to what was going on in the world? I mean, were you aware that there was stuff going on in Europe and Poland and all of that? Well, being at the military academy, war broke out, they immediately called everybody into the study hall and told them what was happening at that particular point mm -hmm. in time. Well, needless to say, everybody that was already a senior at that point in time knew what was going to be going on. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any question about where they were going to end up, and most of them did exactly that. They ended up in service. Right. Now, before Pearl Harbor, though, just were the people at the school paying much attention? Were they paying attention to the news in the world? Yes, we were very well aware of it. We figured something was going to happen. It was just a question of what. Right. Uh, and we, we were going to a school at that time that uh, followed the same pattern of, as, what, as West Point. Mm -hmm. We dressed the same way as they did. And we were uh, 
the army would come in periodically and check us out completely and pass and we had to pass mm -hmm. inspection and so on. And that's how I, how we finally got to be uh, so close to the uh, United States Army. Actually, when we played uh, another military academy, I just want to pause here. Guys. Talking about your, your your school and its program and its being the military the army, right? Was uh, everything that we did was on the same basis as mm -hmm. we did at the military academy at that time, right. the United States Military Academy. Our format was laid on those grounds, mm -hmm. and we reacted the same way because we had government inspections periodically to show that we were capable of doing what was expected of us and to be be qualified as a school that they wanted to be associated with. And that's right. exactly the way it went. Okay. Now, what aspects of military training do they actually give you at the high school level? Marching mostly or? Not just marching. Tactics, mm -hmm. maneuvers, everything that you could imagine went there. Okay. Did you get weapons practice or of any kind or were they not? Pardon me? Uh, did you have weapons practice? Yes, we did. Okay. Yes, we did. We had our own gunnery. Uh, we had a place where we could shoot actually in the basement of, a, of one of the buildings that was available. Mm -hmm. And we had we had actual Army and Navy and Marine personnel were doing a lot of the teaching. Mm -hmm. um, we had a couple of staff sergeants who were doing a, a lot of the basic training, right. uh, assembling weapons and what have you, that sort of thing, taking them apart doing it in a dark room with people mm -hmm. and trying to find what piece went in to what particular area. It had, it had, all, had all the makings of, uh, of what I went through basically in boot camp. I mean, I was, actually I felt, felt one step ahead of everybody mm -hmm. at that point in time because I had, I had all that training before. Right. I, there. I knew the manual of arms like, like, uh, like it was, uh, you don't think of it as somebody just coming in. I was already aware of mm -hmm. what to expect. Okay. Now let's go back I to played a lot of varsity sports at that right. time, and uh, I was the first first cadet in the history of the school that ever won a varsity sport. That won a letter in a varsity sport in the freshman year. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in the history of the school that ever happened. And what sport was that in? pursued that career again a little bit. And I, I, was, I played uh, baseball for approximately seven years after that. Mm -hmm. But my legs gave out as a result. I, mean, I got banged up pretty badly in the service and it was just a question of when I was going to have to give it up. Mm -hmm. But I was fortunate. I, I got some breaks and I took advantage of them. I had a friend that was a, that introduced me to my wife as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. He was a scout for the California Angels. And and uh, the Cincinnati Red Legs. He ended up as a scout of the California Angels, but mm -hmm. when I met him, he was scouting for a for Cincinnati ball club. And he signed me to a contract. Okay. Well, that's kind of getting to the other end of your story. So I'd like to kind of get back here to uh, you're in high school, the war starts, um, 
Now, describe a little bit more sort of what the effect is once, once there is a war going on and that's happening. Now, you still have, you know, a year or so left to go to finish up before you graduate. Now, did things at the school change at all once there was an actual war going on? I think it got harder. Mm -hmm. I think we knew what was coming. And, and as a result, the, uh, the staff that we had available reacted to it accordingly. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the seniors knew what, what was going to happen. They're, they were going to be going in regardless. Right. Some of them probably enlisted before they even got off. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, as I told you how it happened to me, I, I, I got my draft card and they called me and asked me if I wanted to go into the Corps. And I said, I certainly do. That's where mm -hmm. I want to go. That's what I had in mind to begin with. Okay. Now, why were you interested in the Marine Corps? <laughs> That's a good story. Well, mainly because I, my, both of my brothers were in the Army. Mm -hmm. I wasn't pretty interested in, in the Army at that point in time. I had a friend that was in the Marine Corps, and he, uh, I, whether he persuaded me to go, back, go into the Corps, I don't think that was the case. It was just something that I reacted to. I wanted to go mm -hmm. into the Corps, and that was it. All right. Now, and uh, <coughs> I don't regret any, any of it. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, when did you enlist? Or yeah, I enlisted on <clears throat> September fifteenth, nineteen forty-three. All right. And then, where did you report to? For where did you go? Where did you go for training then? San Diego Marine Corps Base. Mm -hmm. Took my basic training there. Graduated from there ten weeks later. Was reassigned to uh, we were getting reassigned assignments, but we had to go to Camp Pendleton for additional okay. training at that particular well, point. Let's go back here to the, that, the basic training part. You've already right. said something about it. You mentioned that you were pretty well prepared for a lot of it already, and maybe yes. a little bit ahead of the game mm -hmm. at that point. Now, were the people you were training with at that point, do you think they were mostly uh, volunteers, or do you think a lot of them had been drafted and just assigned to the Corps at that point? Were they there because they wanted to be, or? Are you talking about the staff now? No, the, the basic training. When you go into basic training, you first show up in San Diego. You're in there with a bunch of guys. Uh, so I wanted, to tell you, wanted you to tell me a little bit about who they were. I mean, were they all volunteers? Did they all want to be in the Marines? That's hard for me to say mm -hmm. because it was a large group. I, I don't know offhand whether a lot of them enlisted or what, what at that particular point. but. Uh, I didn't give away the point that I had previous military experience. That was the last thing I wanted okay. at that point. Now, why, why was that? Well, because I, 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 you're putting yourself above everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I did not want to do. Yeah, you become a target I, that I, way. I was yeah. above, my, above everybody at that point. I knew what, what, what was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to put myself in that position saying, well, I know what, what you're talking about, but that wasn't the case. I just wrote it out the way I had to. All right. You dare not talk back to your drill instructor. Right. And if you did, you suffered the consequences. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it was. Now, were they? In fact, his yeah. name was MacArthur. <laughs> My drill instructor. All right. Did your basic training include things that you had not done uh, already in high school? Were there things that were new at that stage? Uh, the things that probably would have, that did change were the fact that we were firing 
ammunition that you would normally be using in a combat mm -hmm. situation. We weren't doing that at the academy. Right. We were firing for, for, for practicing hitting targets. And that's right. about the extent of it. Right. But there it was an entirely different story. You learned how to dismantle your rifle in a dark room if mm -hmm. it was necessary. No lights and to find the pieces and put the gun together. It's not a gun, it's a rifle, by the way. That's one mistake you don't make in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. This is your rifle, this is your gun, that's the way they look at it. And you don't make that mistake. And fortunately, I did. I, uh, you always make a mistake, though, no matter what, mm -hmm. what the situation is. I can recall one time when I didn't shave properly and I suffered the consequences. I left a little bit of beard on my chin. Mm -hmm. Well, needs to say that morning, I, I was under the bed with, with a straight razor, shaving myself dry. Okay. <laughs> but that, this is something that, we're talking about the discipline mm -hmm. of, of the Marine Corps. Right. And, and how they react to it. If you do something that, you, that, that was irregular from, in the, from their point of view, and their, they felt very strongly about that. And they were going to react to it, and they did. He made me suffer the consequences, mm -hmm. which I did. I never had, a, had to worry about shaving property again after that. Right. And this is what I was leading up to. Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't happen. You learn very quickly. That's the way I felt about it. Uh, if I had to do it all over again, Jim, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's right. the way I feel about the Marine Corps. To this day, mm -hmm. I feel that way. And that's never going to change in my mind. Okay. Now we've gotten, so you you have your 10 weeks in basic, and then you're sent into Pendleton. Is that the next place you go? With the Camp Pendleton for further instructions, or further further uh, assignments also. Mm -hmm. But in, in addition, we were getting more training while the, they're deciding where they were going to put us on. Right. Or they, where they wanted us to be uh, sent to for additional training. Okay. So what were you doing while you were at Pendleton then? We were firing live ammunition weapons, mm -hmm. throwing grenades, automatic weapons, maneuvers, this type of thing that mm -hmm. was going on until we were we re reassigned. We, everybody got called in one day and he said, you're reassigned. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, where, where am I going to be reassigned to? He says, oh, do you like to fly? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, you're going to be a paratrooper. Okay. So that's where they sent me to parachute training school. And uh, I spent about, roughly about four, maybe five months in parachute training school at a place called Camp Gillespie, just outside of the El Toro Marine Corps base. Camp Gillespie was a Marine training base for paratroopers. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I was in the best condition of my life at that particular point in time. There was no doubt in my mind mm -hmm. what they were trying to accomplish. We ran four, four and a half miles a day, sometimes with heavy gear necessary. Mm -hmm. And the last half mile was always uphill, <laughs> believe me. Did 450 knee bends and four counts every day to keep our legs in shape. Took a lot of uh, tumbling training, which was essential. Learn how to pack your own chute. And eventually, if you wanted to be reassigned in that, in that particular area, they could have put you into rigorous, rigorous 
training school mm -hmm. where you pack the chutes for the people that are going to be jumping. Right. We had an occasion over there one time. Now this is the way the story goes, and I'm pretty sure that it's true because I heard it from several sources. There was a man, a Marine, that was in a paratroopers. He made his jump. His chute failed over. Mm -hmm. And he was subsequently killed. The commandant, the commander of our base at that time, went out there, picked up that chute, took it back, repacked it, and a half hour, 45 minutes later, he jumped that same chute to prove to his to command, to his command, that it was not the fault of the chute, but the man who packed it. Mm -hmm. True story. Uh, unfortunately, we never completed our training there. I, I, I had one incident that occurred. It was a, the thrill of my life. Uh, we were on towers that were approximately 300 feet high, mm -hmm. and when you looked down, you looked, you thought you were looking at a postage stamp. Right. The time. But in any case, on this particular uh, training session, they they took you horizontally into shoot all the way up in that position. You went right straight up, all the way to to the 275 foot level. Mm -hmm. and they went up on the, the extra 25 feet to trip you off when, the, when they were ready. They wanted you to be tripped off, but mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. They just took you up that high. And then all of a sudden they released you. And it was your, it was your responsibility to pull your chute mm -hmm. and open up the chute. But dare not drop that damn cord, whatever you do. You, pay, you, you were gonna pay the price if you mm -hmm. did to your jump commander at that point. Well, what had happened, when I pulled my cord, it was a test for opening shock. Mm -hmm. You were gonna fall a certain amount of feet before you get that jolt before, right. before the parachute actually takes hold or builds. Well, what happened to me when I pulled the cord, I began to go head over heels, and that's how I went all the way down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> down to the bottom of the, yeah, of the, the jump. But I had, I hang, hung on to my, my uh, string, mm -hmm. my ripcord, I should say. And uh, they got the biggest laugh of their life, everybody. It was a great, great thrill for them. <laughs> now, <laughs> see, see me coming down the way I did. Now, were you, so did, did, did your chute open or were you attached to a rope? Well, it opened, the chute opened. I okay. got the opening shot, but the shot. But you were flipping over. But flipping over as a result. So how could you be the flipping? So you weren't getting drop. tangled up in, in, in the wires or anything? You were below that and just the, flipping around? I got below that drop zone, and I, I was already flipping at that point. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far down I went, but it was, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a thrill of a lifetime for me. I don't know what the hell was going on. Pardon the expression, but that's just the way it happened. How did you manage to avoid being tangled up in the wires? I mean, if the parachutes are, 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 are you suspended you're, by something? You're on captive wires coming Oh, okay. So you're on captive wires. Mm -hmm. But the, ob the whole object of this was to get the feel of the opening shot right. when you pull the cord. Mm -hmm. And they drop, you dropped about 25 or 30 feet, and then you get that mm -hmm. initial shock. And that's when I began to flip over. Right. Now, did you get far enough into training that you were actually jumping out of airplanes? No, we never got that far, but we were up there several times. Mm -hmm. But uh, the tower was our main focus at right. that particular time. But what had happened? is they abandoned, the Marine Corps abandoned the parachute tra mm -hmm. training school to form the 5th Marine Division okay. with the Marine Raider Battalions. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how the 5th Marine Division became became the 5th Marine Division, mm -hmm. with the Marine Raiders and the Parachute Battalions. So they disbanded, we joined them at Camp Pendleton, and began to take our training over there again. A short while later, we went on to Hawaii. All right. How did, uh, do you remember when you left for Hawaii? I would say sometime in the, I'm trying to think offhand, about May or the early part of May, I believe, of 44. Mm -hmm. okay. At that no. time, we were already in Hawaii. Right. And I and stopped off in Honolulu at that time. Okay. Just to back up again for a little bit, before you went over to Hawaii, did you get a leave or a furlough? Did you get to go home or anything like that? Or did you just stay in California? I got to go home, yes. Got a 30-day leave of absence after we, we took our basic training. That was, that was routine as a matter mm -hmm. of fact at that particular point right. of time. Because you know you were going to be coming back, you didn't know when you were going to see your family again. Mm -hmm. That basically is what happens. But I, uh, I was fortunate. I, I did get to see my brother, mm -hmm. which I hadn't seen in about four years. How he ever got me off ship, I'll never know, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, now you've done that. And when you were in California, whether at, at, at Pendleton or, or at the parachute school, did you get much of a chance to, to go off base or do anything, or did you pretty much just stay in camp? You pretty much stayed at camp. I only got one liberty, and that was for 72 hours, and I told you what happened with that. Mm -hmm. Well, you told me off camera. So you... well, Okay. What had happened is uh, the main highway leading into Los Angeles is where my other brother was going to meet me. Mm -hmm. He uh, contacted me. He said he'd be in L.A. at that particular point in time, and I'll, I was able to get a 72-hour pass. Well, the gate is about 15 miles from where our camp was located. Mm -hmm. We had a, the buses would pick us up and take to take us to US 101, and that would take us into Los Angeles. But I made the mistake of getting off the bus, and the first thing I did was put out my thumb and begin to hitchhike. And sure enough, within no less than five minutes, I was in in the brig. They had picked me up for <laughs> hitchhiking, which was against the law. Okay. With the Marine Corps and Navy ranks at mm -hmm. that point. So they took me back to the brig and I spent five hours in the brig of my 72-hour pass. Mm -hmm. But they were nice enough to take me back five hours later to the exact same spot where they picked <laughs> me up and said, you're on your way now. And I don't recall how I ever got to Los Angeles. And this is a, I thought about that so many mm -hmm. times after that happened, and I don't remember how I got to Los Angeles. Whether I took a bus or a train or what, I don't remember. <laughs> well, no, we're talking about 62 sure years ago, 63 years ago. In any event, I did finally meet my brother mm -hmm. and got to see him for, for a short period of time and went back, went back to the base. That was the last, the last time we had any any uh, liberties, if you would call it. Right. Okay. So now you've gotten yourself um, over to Hawaii. You're in Honolulu. Uh, did you get off? What kind of ship took you over there? We took what we board a troop transport. Mm -hmm. the, troop, the ship was USS Clay, as I remember. Okay. And uh, what was that trip like for you? Well, it took about five or six days for us to get from 
from uh, San Diego then up to San Francisco and go on to mm -hmm. the Hawaiian Islands from that point. Was the weather good or were there problems? I never got sick all the time I was aboard ship. Mm -hmm. and I say that in all honesty. But even when we were on our way to Iwo, I never got sick. So. Okay. But that's another story. But right. in any case, uh, I was one of the fortunate ones. I guess I, I, I had my sea legs long before that, I guess. Mm -hmm. But in any event, uh, we, uh, we were aboard ship for that period of time. And we were relocated in Hawaii, the big island. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the island of Hawaii, right. which is the biggest of yeah. the chain. The uh, places and training at a place called Camp Tarawa. Mainly, I would imagine that because it was Tarawa, one of the main battles that right. took right. place with the Marine Corps, and mm -hmm. but that's what they named the base there. And we spent the next several months training at that location for our trip to Iwo. Mm -hmm. And in January, or the latter part of December, I believe it was, I believe I was aboard ship. Christmas Day, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, New Year's Day. We were on our way to Iwo. We made a couple stops en route, probably to get, get uh, food or supplies mm -hmm. or whatever right. was necessary. And we went right on to Iwo Jima from that point on. All right. Now, how much did you know about that mission before you got there? You knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I say that in all honesty. We heard everybody aboard ship outside of the, the command mm -hmm. knew where we were going, mm -hmm. but everybody below that command had no idea. Right. They finally got our groups together. The, the 5th Marine Division, the 26th Marines, the, the, the group that I was with, the Company E, they called us aside and they said, well, we're on our way. I said, well, where, where are we heading? He said, we're going to a place called Iwo Jima. Mm -hmm. It's about 600 miles from Japan. Mm -hmm. And what we're going over there for is to secure the island for the Air Force. We have to take that land because we need that for the aircraft that we're flying from Guam and Tinian and going over to Japan right. to bomb it. They were getting all beat up by the time they ever got back to where they wanted to go or they ran out of fuel. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of injuries. Iwo was a stop-off place where right. they were able to land there. And I have some figures about that, if, you, if you'd be interested to hear that. Uh, I can tell you right here, but this, this segment right here, uh, more than 21,000 Japanese were killed on the island. Mm -hmm. A few surrendered, along with the Korean slave laborers. During the battle, officials signed that the person, we need a few of the enemy to interrogate. The general response was, okay, do you want them dead or alive? <laughs> well, in any case, what happened when we took Iwo Jima, we helped, we lost 6,824 were killed, mm -hmm. another 19,000 wounded. It was a futile battle. No, the 6,824 dead helped save the lives of 27,000 airmen who were flying back and forth from 
Guam and Tinian. Mm -hmm. And finally, when we took a, the island of Iwo Jima, we secured the airports that were on that land. And, mm -hmm. and the big planes were able to land early. Right. And a lot of them didn't make it in. They got hit the sea. Most, some of them hit the sea, but the important. The 5th Marine Division's main objective at that time, when we landed, to secure the high ground to our left. Mm -hmm. We landed at that point closest to Surawachi. The 26th Marines, 27th and 28th Marines, what two battalions or began to head towards Surawachi. The 26th Marines went right straight up the middle the security air for mm -hmm. the first airfield. We had water in front of us, water behind us, high ground to the left, and the Japanese on the right. So mm -hmm. we had to split the island if we could. They made an attempt to uh, have a bonsai attack. Mm -hmm. and I, we, we broke that up before it ever got started because we were close enough to the water. We, we knew they were coming in on that mm -hmm. side. But the 26 Marines uh, ended up past the air, first airfield, we had secured it. Mm -hmm. By that time it was secured. Not only by us, but, but I'm sure the 4th Marine Division and part of the 3rd were heading in that direction too. But we split the island two to 26 Marines and mm -hmm. 27 and 28 were heading in that direction. Right towards the other, the ocean on the other mm -hmm. side of the island. It was only four miles wide right. to begin with. But initially, the landing if I may interject, I mean, it was the most, most difficult time. Mm -hmm. And I say that, say that in, in all honesty because the confusion that was going on at the time, because the Japanese had laid in on us at that point in time. And we struggled to get ashore. They took every, a lot of our equipment was down before we ever got up to shore. And it bottled up the, bottled up the, uh, the landing mm -hmm. to the point where we had to get get help, other kinds of help to move that equipment out of the way so the people that were still trying to land could get on the land. Okay. Let's tell me sort of about your set of experiences. Let's go back to before the landing itself. They're giving you your briefing, they're telling you where you're going, okay. what your objective is. Did they tell you much about what to expect from the Japanese at that point? Well, we, we honestly, expected very little. That was our first mistake. Mm -hmm. Because they thought with all the bombardment that the Japanese were taking, mm -hmm. a year before that, there was two battleships out there just annihilating. Mm -hmm. And they said, there's nothing, there can't possibly be anything mm -hmm. alive on that island. They, they kept shelling it so often. But when, when we got there, it was a different story. Right. Now, were you in uh, what, what wave of landing, what part phase of the landing were you, was we your company in? We followed the 27th and 28th in the landing. The okay. Division. So you're sort of a second wave, there's been men well, in front actually, of you? It would have been the first wave, we couldn't, we couldn't get in. Mm -hmm. That's what the problem was. Okay. The 27th and 28th got on, mm -hmm. but they were stagnant, they, they, they couldn't move. Right. But they finally got a foothold and started moving over to the left towards Surabachi and some of them went up mm -hmm. down the other side of Surabachi. Or, towards the ocean going on that side. All right. And now, 26 went right straight up. Okay, so there's, um, now you're getting in the, were you going in in a landing craft or an amphibious vehicle or what were you on? It was in a landing craft. We had a man aboard ship that was 
was hit. Fortunately, he wasn't killed, but all he did was complain when he got off the ship. He said, my God, all that training I went through, and he says, I never, mm -hmm. I never even, ever got on land. Took right. him right back to the hospital. Right. <laughs> and uh, he never got off the ship, or he got off the landing craft. Mm -hmm. I have a map here someplace. I've got some things here that might be of some interest to you. I hopefully. I made a note for myself, remember. Mm -hmm. All right, driving onto the beach was extremely difficult. Not driving on it, riding right, right, on, right. on the beach was extremely difficult. To visualize the, dev the devastation the destruction, the confusion, and the dead bodies laying at that point in time. And you were following up mm -hmm. to see all this that happened before you ever even got there. Right. Because of the delay that we had getting on getting on, on the island. Mm -hmm. That was the most difficult part. And then and then the heavy bombardment that that occurred. Story goes now whether I that story is true or not that the, 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 that the Japanese knew that that was the only place that we could really land mm -hmm. if there was ever going to be an invasion. That beach in that area right. was the only possibility that they could think about where they could land properly. Mm -hmm. And apparently they were right. But the story goes, as I said earlier, that the, the Japanese, I understand, buried a lot of munitions. Mm -hmm the beachhead, mm -hmm. deep in the ground, and they began to set their heavy artillery on that zone. Mm -hmm. Well, needless to say, when they hit it, it went up. Right. And everything around it went up, too. I mean, talking about the equipment that was already on the island, that's what blocked everything. Mm -hmm. We couldn't get a foothold on the island. That was the hardest thing in the world to do at that point in time. I have some pictures here that that were taken by the Leatherneck, Leatherneck magazine, and they were the, act, the actual photographs mm -hmm. that were taken by the Marine Corps at that time. Now, I've got copies of them here that I thought... But what we can do with, with those is um, we can get them scanned or whatever and kind of add them to your file that we put if up you there. Like, if you like that would be easier than... Whatever you think is best. Yeah, uh, that, that work tends to work best for this sort of thing. That gives you some idea of what it looks like right there. I won't take up the canvas time, mm -hmm. but if you want but Yeah, but that's will be worth having, certainly. Oh. Okay. Now, do you remember, uh, now, when you landed, did you land actually in the water, or did the landing craft make it all the way up onto the beach? We got onto the beach. Finally. Okay. We got onto the beach. And do you remember about how wide the beach was, or have any, any feeling for that? I have a map here. I know I do. Someplace. I was actually more interested in your impression of it or, or what you remembered or didn't remember uh, Here it is. than that. So. That's the map of Iwo Jima. Mm -hmm. As it appeared to be taken, as I recall, by the, the uh, Leatherneck magazine that was taking the pictures at the time mm -hmm. of the campaign going on. We landed. May I 
Well, it so won't. Yeah, we landed you, you up in this area, hurt. right up in here. Mm -hmm. And came right up here. This is the first airfield. I right. came right up along here and began to move over to towards the north. Mm -hmm. And then Suribachi is down there. 28, in the end. Yeah. 27 Marines were mm -hmm. taking Suribachi by yep. that Now, when you landed, were you, did you run across the beach or did you just hit the ground right away? Or? You hit the ground right away and tried to get a foothold in mm -hmm. some places. There wasn't any problem finding a, a foxhole because there was some shell holes yeah. all yeah. by that time. Uh, it's just a matter of finding one in a hurry and jumping into it. Mm -hmm. But we didn't stay in that position very long. As a matter of fact, the story goes that uh, John Bassalone, I don't know if you ever heard the name or not, but he won the Congressional Medal of Honor on the island of uh, Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. He killed something like 150 Japs single-handedly with a machine gun. So when they sent him back to the States, after he received the Congressional Medal of Honor, he had already been a part of the 5th Marine Division, mm -hmm. but he didn't like what they were going to do with him. They wanted him to go on the bond drive, if you know if mm -hmm. what right, at that right. point in time. He couldn't tolerate that. He says, to me, it's dishonor be all. In every respect, he says, I, I want to be with my people that, were, that I was with and I want to go back. Mm -hmm. So I sent him back. God rest his soul. The first day of action, he was on the beach trying to get everybody to move off the beach. Mm -hmm. Yelling, get off the damn beach, get off the mm -hmm. beach, move, get away from here. All right. Find someplace, get out. He took a direct hit and was killed. Mm -hmm. Three or four others at the same time. I don't think he was on the island more than an hour. He was on the island, on the island that long. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he was killed. And this story is about John. I started to read the whole thing. It's a story that was written after the campaign was over mm -hmm. by uh, Mr. Greeley. He was part of the, uh, the task force that was in the process of invading Iwo Jima at mm -hmm. the time, and he was told to go ashore after after the flag had been raised as about five or six days later, maybe seven days mm -hmm. later, I don't remember exactly, but he wrote, wrote the story about what he felt about what happened, and he wrote this poem. Mm -hmm. And I understand, it's my understanding that it's in the Library of Congress now, I don't know, but, but I was one of the fortunate ones, when he wrote it, he gave me he knew that I was on E1. I met him mm -hmm. at our, one of our Marine Corps meetings one day. And, mm -hmm. and he says, uh, and I, I approached him after the meeting was over. I said, I sure like to have a couple of copies of that. And he was amazed. He says, because, let me tell you why. He said, because you were the only one out of a group of about 40 people that were there to ask me for a copy of mm -hmm. it. And I thought, I said, well, Whatever you, whatever you have to say, I'm going to cherish it because it, I'm sure it's not until many years later. But that's a story in itself. They decided to leave it in because they felt that if I were, there was enough damage at that point, mm -hmm. they were going to take it out any further and it would create a lot more damage. Right. They, they, they wanted to avoid that if they mm -hmm. could, which is what, is what happened. And Consequently, I spent about 
five, six days aboard a hospital ship and they moved us on to Guam. Mm -hmm. So we're going to spend another two weeks at the Naval Hospital on Guam. They transported us by air back to Honolulu. We spent another three weeks at the Naval Hospital in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. Then they put us aboard a hospital ship back to San Francisco. That took another six days. And then they got it. I spent another week or ten days in San Francisco at the Naval Hospital. They got us aboard a hospital train. Mm -hmm. Should be back to Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. Spend the next eight or, eight or nine months at, at the Naval Hospital in Great Lakes. Recovery. Now, recovery times were obviously a lot longer then for some of these things than they are now. How long was it before they were letting you get up out of bed and move around? Once. Mm -hmm. My leg was pretty well beat up. I had right. took a couple of bullets right through my leg and it shattered uh, part of the bone. Was, mm -hmm. was severed and uh, the shrapnel was all over my leg and I had a difficult time getting it out and they decided to leave it in, as I said. Mm -hmm. But they operated on me several years later to get it out. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, that, that's a story in itself. And I must tell you about that if I may. What had happened is when they finally got the shrapnel out, it was embedded in my foot. Mm -hmm. It was about the size of a 50 cent piece. And uh, the doctor, he must have been one of these jokers, I guess, if you want to call him that. But he had, uh, he had a good sense of humor. Mm -hmm. what, when I came out of the anesthesia, I had a bandage wrapped around my hand, right around my wrist. And I, I said, what is this? And I took it apart. And, there was a note attached to it. There was a piece of shrapnel attached to my arm. Mm -hmm. and there was a note attached to it, and it said, Made in Japan. Uh -huh. True story. I had a doctor who took it out. I had several operations later on again for odd, all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. but, uh, many years later, I was under treatment periodically for one reason or another with the legs. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in the VA hospitals. Finally ended up working at the VA hospital mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, California. I got my first job after I got out of the service. I, went, I shouldn't say my first job, I went to school first. Mm -hmm. They sent me through college. I went to school for four and a half years at DePaul University. Mm -hmm. They paid my expenses all the way through because I was under what they call a public law 16 at that time. If you were a disabled veteran, mm -hmm. you were entitled to that benefit. Right. And there was another law, I can't remember the name of it, I think it was 346 or whatever it was, but that was a different law mm -hmm. entirely for non-service connected wounded veterans. Right that they could pursue their education with mm -hmm. the amount of time that they spent in the service and so forth, which was another way to go. But I took my four and a half years and spent it at DePaul and I became a, finally ended up in working with the mental patients at, at the Los Angeles VA Hospital for mm -hmm. about 13 years. Then they transferred me to Battle Creek where I became a program coordinator for the drug and alcohol unit. I began to, everybody that came to our unit had to go through my office before they could mm -hmm. be uh, 
be a part of the unit at that time. It was a drug and alcohol unit, which was the best experience I ever had in my life. With the people that I was working with, mm -hmm. one thing. We used to call what we called a lovin'. This is the kind of a man we worked for. You didn't, you didn't dare go home at night if he had something on your mind. So mm -hmm. he would invariably, on every day, call what he called a lovin'. All the staff mm -hmm. had a beat. He said, you got something on your mind? Now is to get it off. You got something to talk to somebody about that you think is responsible for what you're complaining about? Let them know right now. Mm -hmm. Get it off your chest. Because when you leave here, it stays here. It's not going to come back tomorrow. You're going to start a different day, and we're going to work on that. And that's exactly what we handled. I did that for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. Best experience I ever had in my life working with that man. He taught me a lot. He's a good man. And I ended up in back home with my mom and dad uh, to help them out as much as I could because they were living in Pawpaw, Michigan at mm -hmm. that time. My dad had, a, had bought a great vineyard by that time. And I was working in Battle Creek, which is about 35, mm -hmm. 40 miles from where I was living. And I was traveling back and forth from the VA back right. to help my dad out as much as I could because they wanted he needed the help at that time. Mm -hmm. So I stayed with him for a good number of years and helped him with the great vineyard, which he eventually finally sold. Because I, I, and they moved back, back to Chicago. Why and I, to this day, I'll never know, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. I was the only one that ever left home of our family. I was the only one that broke from home, if you mm -hmm. will. I felt in my, my own way, point in time and if I didn't if I did stay in Chicago I would have been would have been I would have became a victim of my environment and I didn't want that to happen. I fortunately met my wife in Chicago and that was through my baseball mm -hmm. uh, relations that I had with this fellow Nick Hams. He was a scout for the Cincinnati Reds and California Angels. He introduced me to my wife on a blind date. Mm -hmm. A year later we now, uh, you said you were after, so how long was it before you could actually go out and play baseball? I mean, you, you had all these leg injuries and so forth. It was difficult, very difficult. I, I tried, and it was a good three or four years after I, I got out of, mm -hmm. I was picked up by the Chicago White Sox in 1947. I was taken to spring training with that year mm -hmm. as a uh, non-roster player. Right. People just don't understand that when I tell them that I was with the White Sox. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't understand how the how the system works. But that's what happened. They picked me up and took me to spring training. They wanted to go to look at me. Mm -hmm. Signed me to a contract. Shipped me to one of their clubs, which I finished up with. Two years later, they sold my contract to the Chicago Cubs. Mm -hmm. A couple of years later, I was released by the Chicago Cubs and signed by the Cincinnati organization. So what level of minor league ball did you get to? You? Well, let me finish the whole story. Okay. You get, you'll get a pretty good idea right. of what I'm talking about. I played, uh, I was a catcher. Mm -hmm. I played at the AAA level at one point. Mm -hmm. I was assigned at the AAA level at one point. But mm -hmm. That's the, the end of it, the end of the story. Let me get to the okay. middle part of it. He assigned me to Tulsa, which was a double A two mm -hmm. at that time. And I had a bit of a problem with my leg. 
and I called Bill McKechnie, who was the general manager of the Cincinnati Club mm -hmm. at that time. He said, well, when you're ready to come back, you let me know. Not when you think you're ready, but when you're ready, mm -hmm. you come back and let me know. And I called him back about six weeks later. And he reassigned my contract to Columbia and the South Atlantic League. And I had the fortune to play with the best ball player I ever met in my life, barring none. His name was Henry Aaron. Mm -hmm. He was capable of a lot of things. This guy was a man in every sense of the word. And, and I say this because of what he endured or went through while he was playing baseball in the sun. The preceding program is copyrighted by Grand Valley State University. Visit us at gbsu.edu.